When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. With a masterpiece like Moroni 7 behind us, Moroni 8 and 9 come across with a little different spirit. Chapter 7, after all, was a discourse, a sermon that Mormon taught on faith, hope, and charity. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 are letters that Mormon writes to his son, much more personal, much more raw, and they reflect a lack of faith, hope, and charity on the part of Mormon's people. It's interesting that back in the Book of Mormon, Mormon even admits to us, I don't want to dwell upon the, the scenes of blood and carnage that are all around me. I'm not going to get very specific about these things. I'll talk more about general wickedness and abomination. But I don't want to weigh you down with sorrow. Well, in this, these letters that he writes, especially Moroni chapter 9, there's no sugarcoating. We can see some horrific detail that Mormon tried to shield us from earlier in his book. But to see what he was dealing with all around him, this is a civilization that has lost its hold on good things because they have lost their faith in Christ. And without faith in him, there can be no hope for ultimate things or any charity for one another. Now chapter 8 begins, An epistle of my father Mormon written to me, Moroni. It was written unto me soon after my calling to the ministry. So shortly after Moroni was given the gift of a calling through the grace of Christ and the will of God. This is what he wrote. Verse 2, My beloved son Moroni, I rejoice exceedingly that your Lord Jesus Christ hath been mindful of you and hath called you to his ministry and to his holy work. Such a beautiful insight that every calling is not just a gift as we saw in Moroni 7, but is evidence that God is mindful of us that he recognizes what we have to offer, even if it's just five loaves and two fishes, but that he accepts them. Not only is God mindful of him in verse 2, but Mormon is mindful of him in verse 3. I am mindful of you always in my prayers, continually praying unto God the Father in the name of his holy child, Jesus. I, I don't know if that's ever been said in, those, in quite those terms. His holy child, Jesus especially as we approach the Christmas season now. I, I just love the thought of that, to see the sun side of Jesus, the condescending Christ, and it's in his name, the baby Jesus, the holy child. Father, will you be merciful to me because of how you feel about him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his holy child, Jesus. If that doesn't give you more faith in God's willingness to bless us, I don't know what would. 
Mormon prays for his son Moroni in that name, the name of his holy child Jesus, that he through his infinite goodness and grace, there's always enough, there's more than sufficient, that he would keep you through the endurance of faith on his name to the end. We usually just cut to the chase and talk about enduring to the end. I love this as a more full definition of what that entails. It's not just that we're enduring to the end. It's that our faith in Christ is enduring to the end. Because if my faith in him endures, then I do. Then my hope endures. Then my charity endures. Then my repentance and my covenants endure. Because I know that he is behind it all. He, the promise of God personified. Now in verse 4, it's time to get to the meat of this message. Now, my son, I speak unto you concerning that which grieveth me exceedingly. For it grieveth me that there should disputations rise among you. Now, we might initially assume, well, this is a military leader, right? And another military leader about conflict, about wars and rumors of wars, about disputations, Nephites versus Lamanites. But that's not what he's talking about. This isn't general to, to commander. This is prophet to prophet. This is him saying, spiritually speaking, there are disputations among our people. And that grieves me deeply. You remember what he saw in this sermon back in chapter 7? The peaceable followers of Jesus. Your peaceable walk with the children of men. You are peacemakers, and thus you are the children of God. But here, disputations among you. Remember how often we saw that in 3 Nephi when Jesus came? When people were after orthodoxy, but they were giving up unity along the way. And as important as orthodoxy is, it has to be achieved through the means of unity. In 3 Nephi 11, Jesus chides them about their contention. They were disputing baptism then. In 3 Nephi 18, there was disputation over church discipline. In 3 Nephi 27, they were disputing about the name of the church. These were all good people. Wanting good things, pursuing clear doctrine, and yet they were going about it the wrong way. And that was a source of grief to Mormon, and more importantly to Father in Heaven. Specifically here, verse 5, if I have learned the truth, so he's not wanting to jump to conclusions here, but if it's true what I've heard, there have been disputations among you concerning the baptism of your little children. Now again, if these are church members disputing over church doctrine, then it's not as cut and dried, clear-cut a case as it might seem to be. I mean, if all the evidence and the doctrine is so perfectly clear that it can all come down easily on one side, then there's really nothing to contend about. So can you, can you at least give the opposition the benefit of the doubt and, and try to understand where are they coming from? I remember as a missionary teaching a Catholic family that was so adamant that their infant baptism counted. And as a younger missionary, I would have, I don't know, probably handled it very poorly and just said, no, no, that's false doctrine. But instead to be able to, to thank them, to, to applaud them, say, I am so grateful that you understand the absolutely essential nature of baptism. That you would consider salvation so essential that even newborns would need it. That you recognize the importance of the church, that you cannot envision any kind of salvation outside of it. And th therefore, baptism into the church is absolutely required from the day of birth on. In my hopes of avoiding disputation and contention, can I at least validate the thinking that went behind this? 
incomplete as it might be. And here Mormon is going to overcome that incompleteness. He wants them to understand perfectly what is wrong about the doctrine of infant baptism. Now he's going to get to that explanation very soon. But there are some principles scattered throughout this chapter that I think are worth pulling out and seeing together in terms of how do we deal with disputation in general. It may not be infant baptism that you're arguing about. It may be other things. But to see the approach that Mormon takes, I think has some important parallels for the way we handle these kinds of potentially divisive issues ourselves. For example, chapter 8, verse 6, Now, my son, I desire that you should labor diligently that this gross error should be removed from among you. For this intent, I have written this epistle. So what do we do when disputations arise? We do all within our power. We labor diligently to remove the source of these errors and disputations. We don't just let it slide. We don't just ignore the issue. Now, again, be careful about swinging the pendulum too far. Again, there are those, remember this phrase from Ephesians where Paul talks about speaking the truth in love. There are some who only speak the truth and they don't do it very lovingly. There are others who only concern themselves with love and so they, they shy away from having to speak truth because it can ruffle feathers or, or rock the boat. We've got to try to strike this balance somehow. We have to labor diligently to solve these issues. Ignoring them does not make them go away. In verse 7, what does Mormon do initially? Immediately after I learned these things of you, I inquired of the Lord concerning the matter. And the word of the Lord came to me by the power of the Holy Ghost. Such an important key. Don't wait. Don't let things fester. He immediately began trying to work things out. And how did he do it? He went to the Lord first. You want to know how to solve disputes or to calm contention? Turn to the Lord, the Prince of Peace. Seek the Spirit, the Comforter. Do it quickly before we become even more entrenched in our position or become more and more oppositional against one another. And in verse 8, the Spirit says to him, Listen to the words of Christ, your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Now we can do that every time we open the Scriptures. They give us the chance to listen to the words of Christ. In other words, study what the Lord has said on the subject. Ask him about it. There's prayer. Listen to his words. There's study. Seek the Spirit to make sense of these things. Where should we come down on these particular issues? We'll see in a moment specifically what Mormon learns here. But again, follow his path, his, his procedure. Verse 9, after this manner did the Holy Ghost manifest the word of God unto me. So allow the Spirit to help you see the principles in Scripture that apply to the situation that you're in. Now, here I should kind of pause and say, by the way, this is a prophet doing this. And so when it comes to doctrinal disputes, that's the prophet's realm. That is prophets, seers, and revelators. And they do follow the, these kinds of procedures. They do inquire of the Lord concerning these matters. They seek the Spirit's guidance. They turn to the scriptures and the words of the prophets that went before them. And they receive the Holy Ghost's manifestation of the Lord's will concerning these things. That is their role. I think these principles apply to us, not in terms of establishing doctrine, but to try to figure out how we can best lay to rest some of the animosities that lie between us. How do we overcome disputation among family members or friends? Put in the work to put away the errors. Pray about it. 
Study the scriptures about it. Act quickly on this so that these problems don't fester. Allow the Holy Ghost to guide your thoughts and actions. And then, if you jump ahead to verse 16, act on those impressions boldly. Behold, I speak with boldness, having authority from God. Again, with doctrinal disputes, we do not have the authority from God. But those who do, prophets, seers, and revelators, do act with boldness upon that authority. They don't fear what man can do, because perfect love casteth out all fear. You see how Mormon is trying to balance this here? We need to strike the same balance. To be bold, but not overbearing. And how do we draw the line? With charity. Charity knows to be bold enough to speak out in love and truth. But charity also knows when it becomes too overbearing that we're pushing people away instead of drawing them closer. In 17 he tells us, I am filled with charity, which is everlasting love. So he is speaking the truth. And he's speaking it boldly. But he's speaking it in love. And that's the balance that we have to learn to strike. He reiterates that in 21. I speak it boldly. God hath commanded me. Listen unto them and give heed, or they stand against you at the judgment seat of Christ. You would have to have authority behind your decisions to be able to make statements like that. But to hold people accountable for the message that you've shared with them, knowing the message came from God. If you hold yourself accountable to receive God's guidance through these kinds of issues, only then can you hold other people accountable for the message that you've given them. Again, you're balancing your boldness with your love. You're following the Spirit. You're doing what God would have you do. Now, like I said, those principles can apply across the board, whatever our source of conflict or contention. Now, in, as we saw earlier at the beginning of this chapter, the specific issue that Mormon was grappling with was infant baptism. So let's now get to, from the general to the specific and see what it is that Mormon learned from the Lord and wants to make sure that this water gets to the end of the row. Verse 8, these are the words of Christ, our Redeemer, Lord and God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. We saw Jesus teach that during his mortal ministry in the New Testament. So as a result of that, wherefore, little children are whole. They are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them. And the law of circumcision is done away in me. It all boils down to that central phrase, little children are whole. And they are whole because of Christ. He does not hold them accountable before their age of accountability arrives. King Benjamin taught this in Mosiah 3. As in Adam or by nature they fall, even so the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. See, it's not that they can't do things that we would consider wrong. I always kind of chuckle when I think, well, if kids can't sin before they're eight, I know some kids that were quick learners. It's simply that it's not counted as sin because the accountability is not there to make it sinful. So when Mormon says they are not capable of committing sin, it's because the atonement covers those things until they become accountable before God. In, act, in their own actions. You see that more clearly in section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he teaches that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world through mine only begotten. It's still, still through Jesus. It's not independent of him. Wherefore they cannot sin. So that's how the Lord defines their sinlessness. 
It's not independent perfection. It's redemption through Jesus. It is given unto them even as I will according to mine own pleasure. Section 29 goes on to say, that great things may be required at the hand of their fathers. Interesting. That a child's years of, of unaccountability are actually meant to be blessings to their parents, not just blessings to the children. It gives those parents time to help their children grow up in an understanding of things so that once they are accountable, they're ready to live the gospel as taught. It's a coach having the blessing of preseason to be able to work out the kinks on the team, help them learn from their mistakes, get them to a point where they're actually ready to play in the regular season when their record begins to count. And what covers that preseason unaccountability? The grace of Christ. So baptism isn't yet needed for them to bring Christ into their life. Christ simply decides to be a part of their life and to make them alive in him from birth. Verse 10, he says, Behold, I say unto you that this thing shall ye teach, repentance and baptism unto those who are accountable and capable of committing sin, actions that actually count as sinful. Yea, teach parents that they must repent and be baptized and humble themselves as their little children, and they shall all be saved with their little children. I love the way he puts that. It's not a matter of parents helping children to become like them. It's a matter of parents trying to become more like their little children. We parents, we adults are the ones that need repentance and baptism. We are the ones who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Children become the ultimate example of what we're supposed to become like, to become childlike, which is a way of becoming Christ-like. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that beautiful scene from 3517 when Jesus told the parents, the adults, to bring their little children. You want to come to Jesus? Then bring your children to me. And that's the closest you'll get. Verse 11 reiterates it. Their little children need no repentance, neither baptism. Behold, baptism is unto repentance to the fulfilling the commandments unto the remission of sins. It's not that our obedience to commandments washes away our sins. It's that Jesus does. But the conditions of the covenant we make with him are set by him. And he asks us to repent and be baptized. But he doesn't ask that of little children. Repentance and baptism are for those of us who need it, not those who are already alive in Christ. That's the phrase he uses in verse 12. It's so beautiful. Little children are alive in Christ even from the foundation of the world. It seems that often as we grow up, we tend to grow away from God. And it's then that we need repentance. It's then that we need baptism to make a covenant so that we'll return to God. Now, Mormon is going to use some admittedly strong language in this letter. But remember that it's a letter. This wasn't for general consumption. This isn't a sermon that he gave to the people that were teaching this false doctrine. I imagine that if he were... It would be as full as love as we know Mormon to be. Remember, he says that in that later verse. I am filled with charity, which is everlasting love. I think sometimes that charity gets lost in some of the language that Mormon uses as he's simply writing to his son Moroni to try to get him going to make sure he is laboring as diligently as his father is to make sure that this gross error is removed from among the people. Some of the strong language, for example, is what you see in verse 9. My beloved son, I know that it is solemn mockery before God that ye should baptize little children. 
solemn mockery. It's as if we are telling God, your atonement does not cover those people. When the exact opposite is true, for little children, they are alive in Christ. They are not accountable yet. So don't make a mockery of God or his atonement by saying, to this point and no further. Little children are simply in a different category. And that category is saved by Christ. It's one of the reasons we do bad prisons for the dead for every child of God that's ever lived, except those who died before the years of accountability. Baptism, as was said in verse 11, is unto repentance for people who needed to repent. It's part of the fulfilling the commandments unto the remission of sins, but the command was not given to little children. Their redemption is a gift of grace, and that special category is treated differently. If verse 9 says it's solemn mockery, in verse 14 there's some other strong language. He that supposeth that little children need baptism is in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. He hath neither faith, hope, nor charity. Again, those three always seem to be on Mormon's mind. Wherefore, should he be cut off while in the thought, he must go down to hell. Now, why so serious? And again, this is, this is father to son, prophet to prophet. He, I, I, I have to believe that he would have said things a little differently had he been writing directly to the people that he was speaking about. But why so serious? Go back to verse 12. Little children are alive in Christ, even from the foundation of the world. If not so, so this is part of the gall of bitterness or the bonds of iniquity. This is, this is the, the mentality that it was without faith, hope, and charity. It's thinking that God is a partial God and a changeable God and a respecter to persons. For how many little children have died without baptism? So to think that one little child can be saved because they had a baptism and the other little child cannot be because they didn't? Where's the faith, hope, and charity in that? He says it in 15, Awful is the wickedness to suppose that God saveth one child because of baptism, and the other must perish because he hath no baptism. According to 16, that's a perversion of the ways of the Lord. You see, there's no difference between a child with baptism or a child without baptism, because they're both children. They're both unaccountable. Neither one needs baptism or repentance. Verse 17, All children are alike unto me, Wherefore, I love little children with a perfect love. They are all alike and partakers of salvation. And Mormon knows that about little children because he knows this about God. Verse 18, I know that God is not a partial God, neither a changeable being, but he is unchangeable from all eternity to all eternity. Thinking any different, thinking that little children had to repent even though there is no sin on their record, that is awful wickedness because it denies the pure mercies of God unto them. For they are all alive in him because of his mercy. That's why Mormon is taking this so seriously. In verse 20, He that saith that little children need baptism denieth the mercies of Christ, setteth it not the atonement of him and the power of his redemption. It reminds me of that interesting truth from the Doctrine and Covenants that if you don't forgive someone who repents, then you're guilty, which never seemed quite fair until you realize, wait, if I'm not forgiving them, then I'm telling God that his, that his mercy is, is insufficient. I'm telling Christ that his atonement can go thus far and no further. Wow. Standing in God's way, drawing up stakes for the atonement? Yeah, that is more serious than whatever the other person did to me. The big concern in Mormon's mind is not what infant baptism says about the infant. It's what it says about God. That he somehow could not extend mercy to a sinless child. 
that the atonement of Christ cannot redeem this person, even though they're already alive in Christ from the beginning. 22, he says it again. All little children are alive in Christ. And then he expands it in an interesting way. And also all they that are without the law. For the power of redemption cometh on all them that have no law. Wherefore he that is not condemned, or he that is under no condemnation, cannot repent. And unto such baptism availeth nothing. Now there's an interesting Venn diagram that we could draw from verse 22. With little children in one circle and those that are out of the law, without the law, in the other. And there's some overlap there. Neither one is condemned because neither one understands the law. You can't be condemned by the law you didn't know. But there's some part in that Venn diagram that doesn't overlap. There are some differences between little children and those that have no law. Because as we saw back in Moroni chapter 7, the light of Christ is given to all of us to judge. And so even if a specific law has not condemned you, is there a law within us? This is what Paul talks about to the Romans. And so it is for adults, even those who died without law, that we will provide a baptism for the dead in their behalf. They won't be held accountable for not living up to a list of sins that they were unfamiliar with. But for what was written on the fleshy tables of the heart, that is a set of commandments that we are all responsible for, having achieved the age of accountability. We will perform baptisms for those people because repentance is still a requirement for them. For the rest, however, for the things that they are not accountable for, and for all things, that are, in a child's case, that are, that are unaccountable. Verse 23, it is mockery before God, denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's just putting trust in dead works. As if a checking of the box were sufficient to change their status before God when it's the change of heart that is required. Section 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants lets us know that's the whole reason the church was restored in our day, so that we would overcome placing confidence in dead works. That's the same chapter where the Lord says that it doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized. If baptism is just a dead work to you, then, that, then the box checking isn't what's doing it. It's the covenant with Christ that is changing things. And since children are already alive in Christ, they don't need to make that outward covenant. It's kind of like little children being born in the covenant to parents who've already been sealed. They don't have to go to the temple and receive the ordinance of sealing. It's understood. They were born under that covenant. Well, in a similar way, every child is born into the covenant with Christ. They are alive in him. It's only with the coming of accountability that they have to make a conscious decision to, to renew a covenant with Christ, one that would require repentance and baptism and the receipt of the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the sense you get in verse 24. Repentance is unto them that are under condemnation and under the curse of a broken law. The first fruits of repentance is baptism. So baptism grows out of that desire to repent. I want to make that covenant relationship that I need. And baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments, and the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sins. So similar to what we talked about back in verse, what was it? 11. Now 26. The remission of sins bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart. 
Remember Mormon talked about that in Moroni chapter 7? These are things that are on his mind. They bring meekness and lowliness of heart. And because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost. This is such a, a beautiful expanded version of the fourth article of faith. We sometimes just fly through it as if it were a checklist of dead works. Faith, check. Repentance, check. Baptism, check. Confirmation, Holy Ghost, check. But to see what happens in between and how they're related, that our faith in Christ is what leads me to want to do anything he asks me to do. Repenting of the times I haven't, of covenanting to do better. There's the, the fulfilling the commandments of righteousness for the remission of sins in baptism. That bringing meekness and loneliness of heart because it's changing me. I can't believe that God, well, I can believe. I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled by the fact that the Lord would wash away my sins. That brings meekness. That brings loneliness of heart. And in that state, no wonder the Holy Ghost can come and minister to me. I'm so open to that ministration. That comforter then fills me with hope and with perfect love. And that love endures by diligence unto prayer until the end shall come. When all the saints shall dwell with God. That's similar to the crescendo of faith to hope to charity. Well, here's this crescendo of faith to repentance, to baptism, to the Holy Ghost. Paved with meekness and loneliness of heart all along the way hope and perfect love coming in. I, I, all of these beautiful Christ-like attributes coming together in one. That's what adults need. That's what children already have. Unfortunately, they unlearn those things over time and have to relearn those things, making a conscious decision to become alive in Christ, to return to the life they had in Him when they were children. I feel that way about myself often. There's so much about my own childhood I miss. And one of the things I miss is myself. In some ways, a better self. More humble, more reliant, more full of faith that if I just asked, God would bless me with the things that I needed. He always seemed to when I was little. He still does. When I am little, or I should say lowly, of heart. When meekness and humility inform my prayers so that I know what to ask for and hope in those things is always fulfilled with my love enduring through that diligent prayer. Such beautiful verses there. Verse 27, Mormon then begins to wrap up this letter. Behold, my son, I will write unto you again if I go not out soon against the Lamanites. There's that other pesky hat I have to keep wearing going out and being the military commander God is asking me to be. Behold, the pride of this nation, or the people of the Nephites, hath proven their destruction, except they should repent. Maybe this is really what's driving this whole letter. People thinking that it's just checking off boxes and dead works. That, hey, as long as I got baptized, isn't that enough? Can I live however I want to live? Eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday I was baptized? No, it has to be repentance. It has to be a change of heart, meekness and lowliness. Verse 28, pray for them, my son, that repentance may come unto them. Again, that's a cure for de a dead work perspective on repentance. Oh yeah, I can always repent. No big deal. Just more boxes to check. I, I go through all my R's of, of I don't know, re recognition and remorse and restitution. No. Do we have the humility and the, the meekness to hope 
that repentance can still come unto us. Of course it can. Of course it will, if we are humble. As often as my people repent, I will forgive them their sins, we're told in the Book of Mormon. But we can't presume upon his grace, as Paul warned the Romans. So pray for them, that repentance may come. Behold, I fear, lest the Spirit hath ceased striving with them. And in this part of the land they are also seeking to put down all power and authority which cometh from God. And they are denying the Holy Ghost. We saw that earlier in Mormon's own writings. That fear that the Spirit was going to give up on them because they'd given up on God. That the Spirit was surrendering because they refused to yield to his enticings. Again, maybe another hint at what's wrong with infant baptism here. If the people are putting down all power and authority which comes from God anyway, then again, is baptism just a checking off of the box with no real intent behind it? Are they denying the Holy Ghost? Then what's the point of being baptized and then confirmed to receive that gift? Finally, 29 and 30. After rejecting so great a knowledge, my son, they must perish soon. And so they did. Unto the fulfilling of the prophecies which were spoken by the prophets as well as the words of our Savior himself. And no one was more familiar with those prophecies than Mormon was. So he concludes his letter. Farewell, my son, until I shall write unto you, or shall meet you again. Amen. This beautiful relationship between father and son, this hope to reconnect, whether in words or in person. And he did with another letter that we can study in chapter 9. Now as we get into chapter 9 of Moroni, again, keep an eye out for Mormon and the feelings that are behind what he's dealing with. I think in many ways chapter 9 helps inform Mormon's approach in chapter 8. Because if he comes across as almost too strong in this letter about baptism and solemn mockery and there's no faith, hope, and charity and this, this struggle that he has over what we might consider, wow, are you, are you overreacting, Mormon? I think chapter 9 helps us keep that in perspective going, whoa, he's not overreacting at all. Because if baptism has become merely a, a, a box to check at the exclusion of repentance, chapter 9 helps us recognize just what it was that these Nephites needed to repent of. Because not only is it the wickedness of the Lamanites that Mormon is describing here, it's the wickedness of his own people, the Nephites, as well. And it's, it's awful. And if to, to think that, hey, well, baptism was good enough, we'll make sure our kids get it, we'll do it for ourselves, and that's going to put everything in the clear, that is solemn mockery before God. To think that baptism just eliminates sin without the, com the companionship of repentance. To think that something that we, we, we washed away our sins and didn't need any help from Jesus as far as a covenant relationship with, his, with him is concerned. Moroni 9 is devastating. And like I said before, it's the, the unwhitewashed, the unsugarcoated version of what Mormon gave us back in the Book of Mormon, as he described in more vague terms the wickedness around him. Well, now to his son, he's going to be much more specific. Now, the chapter begins in verse 1, My beloved son, I write unto you again, that you may know that I am yet alive, which lets you know that that was probably always on Mormon's mind, for his father, and always on Mormon's, excuse me, Moroni's mind for his father, and on Mormon's mind for his son. Will we get to keep talking? Will this be the last time we get to write? Well, this time he says, I write somewhat of that which is grievous. And that's an understatement. He describes some of the military happenings in verse 2, and then verse 3, big picture. 
Behold, my son, I fear lest the Lamanites shall destroy this people, for they do not repent. And Satan stirreth them up continually to anger one with another. Again, we saw this in Mormon. The less concerning to him than, than military kinds of things was the spiritual issues that were taking place among his people. And here, if they were too eager to get baptized in chapter 8, they are not eager enough to repent in chapter 9. Verse 4, picture the dilemma that Mormon finds himself in, rhetorically speaking, or as far as, how do I persuade people? Behold, I am laboring with them continually. We saw that in chapter 8 as well, to, to labor diligently to remove gross errors. But here's what he's up against. When I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble in anger against me. But when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear lest the spirit of the Lord hath ceased striving with them. He mentions that again. He's always concerned who's going to give up first. Them give up on God or God give up on them. But he's, he's caught between this rock and a hard place of if I speak boldly, then they, they get angry at me. Remember Nephi's discussions with Laman and Lemuel. The wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very core. But on the flip side, if I go soft, then they become the, the complacent. It's either anger or indifference with no middle ground. I'm darned if I do and darned if I don't. So what am I supposed to say to them? That again, that might help us understand a little bit more about the boldness behind his language in Moroni chapter 8. If it comes across too harsh for us, just realize what he's up against. No harshness, it just leads to indifference. I'm going to have to be bold to the point almost of being overbearing. It is a razor-thin line that Mormon is trying to walk. And if you've ever tried to cry repentance to people that are they're going to fight you if you're too strong or they're going to ignore you if you're too soft. Finding that middle ground is very, very difficult. Balancing speaking the truth in love is always tricky, but especially when the audience is going to crucify you either way. Only the spirit can strike the right balance of how soft and how hard. And you just have to pray that they're open to the spirit and that it's the spirit's not giving up on them for having given up on him. But what you see basically from that verse forward, from verse 5 on, is the description of a society whose wickedness was bringing them down to their own destruction. As we read them, think less about Nephites and Lamanites and think more about ourselves and realize what is it do we, that we see in our time period all around us and are there some similarities here. Verse 5, So exceedingly do they anger that it seemeth me that they have no fear of death. They have lost their love one towards another, and they thirst after blood and revenge continually. You understand why his sermon in chapter 7 would be faith to hope to charity? The love of men has, has waxed cold, the signs of the times describe. And that's what's happening here. All replaced by anger and violence and revenge. Those seem to be the driving forces behind our lack of bipartisanship, between our lack of understanding one with another. So much of what we see politically, economically, racially, you name it, comes down to these same kinds of issues. Now he describes this bloodthirstiness, this vengefulness, this anger in more graphic detail starting in verse 8. And brace yourself, this is depravity. 
and the depravity he's describing in verse 8 is among the Lamanites. They have taken men, women, and children prisoner in these battles. But in verse 8, he describes what's happening among the Nephite prisoners. The husbands and fathers of those women and children they have slain, and they feed the women upon the flesh of their husbands and the children upon the flesh of their fathers, and no water save a little do they give unto them. So men being killed and then fed to their women and children. Disgusting, and yet that's not even the worst of it. In verse 9 he says, Notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it's easy enough to see what they're doing wrong, your enemies, but it doth not exceed that of our people in Moriantum. So he sees the wickedness and depravity among the Nephites as well. Behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue, after they had done this thing, they did murder them in a most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death. And after they have done this, they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts because of the hardness of their hearts. This is devastating. This is troubling at, at, at the deepest possible level. Rape, torture, murder, cannibalism, depravity. This is lowering themselves to the level of animals. Wild beasts is the description that is used in verse 10. You understand why the book of Revelation, John would describe the, the political powers of the last days as beasts, a dog-eat-dog -dog world, fully survival of the fittest, the kinds of things that Korahor taught way back in Alma 30? This is what this time period is up against. This is what they've descended to when human beings have become mere objects for someone's lust, or someone's anger, or someone's violence, even someone's hunger. It's this, the, the disgusting, this depravity. But when we objectify one another, where there isn't a human being behind it, it's just, it's just body, it's just lust, it's just flesh, it's just food, it's whatever it is. But to objectify to the point that we do not see humanity behind the, another person's eyes. And worst of all, notice the last line of verse 10. And they do it for a token of bravery. There seems to be some, some machismo here, some, some masculine chest thumping to be able to say, look what I can do. It's horrifying to see the kinds of things that are justified in the name of bravery or some other kind of attribute people claim as their own to justify the loss of every Christ-like attribute. You want to talk about courage? Then look no further than Christ. You want to see real bravery? Then stand up to sin and death. Don't succumb to it. Treat people with compassion. There's courage. Lift others out of love. That's real bravery. Such a tragedy that in our day, so many things that are labeled as manly are anything but because they are so far from the example of the man of holiness and the son of man himself. Real manhood and manliness is virtue. The actual root of that word is manliness. The virtue that comes out of Jesus as he heals people. The virtue that is meant to define each one of us as we follow the example of Jesus Christ. The other thing that needs to be pointed out is what comes at the end of verse 9. When it spoke of raping the Lamanite prisoners, it's described as 
depriving them of what is most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue. It's true that chastity and virtue are among the dearest and most precious gifts that God gives his children. But it isn't true that a woman is deprived of her chastity and virtue if she is the victim of rape. And that is something that needs to be clarified here. Prophets and apostles have taught this. Elder Scott has done it boldly and powerfully as he's talked to women particularly about being the victims of someone else's abuse. I remember years ago, a sweet woman asking me for a priesthood blessing. And because I didn't know her situation, I just wanted to understand a little bit more why she was seeking this help. I asked her to tell me a little of her story, and it turns out that she had been the victim of a rape and was just needing comfort and help to get through the aftermath of that. And I just remember feeling so devastated for her and hearing myself say in that priesthood blessing that she was under the care of the God of the innocent victim, who is Jesus Christ, that no one was more innocent than he, and yet no one was more victimized. But to be an innocent victim, that's what rape is. The perpetrator of such acts has lost his chastity or virtue. The victim has not lost hers. You are not damaged goods. You are not chewed up and spat out chewing gum. You are not used material. You are not at fault. You're not to blame. You are a victim. And the Lord knows what it means to be an innocent victim. He will advocate for you, believe me. Mormon goes on with this description. In fact, he laments what he's been seeing. He says in verse 11, Oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization... We talk about civilization collapsing here. Well, it's not even... You can't even call it civilization anymore. They are so far from civilized. What's the root of civilization? Civility and civil. But they are not being civil towards one another at all. Verse 12, only a few years have passed away. They were a civil and a delightsome people. But, oh, my son, how can a people like this, whose delight is in so much abomination... So it's not just that they, they commit these sins and feel bad about it. It's not bad works with not bad intent. This is an evil river that is flowing out of an evil fountain. It is bitter water all the way down. They delight in their abomination. Verse 14, how can we expect that God will stay his hand in judgment against us? Interesting that he includes himself in that pronoun. This is us. This is our people. He doesn't just wash his hands of it and say, this is them and it's on them. He has a role to play as he is crying repentance to these people, laboring diligently to remove gross errors. It's motivated by love. Charity was the one thing he never lost for his people, even when faith and hope waned. Verse 15, my heart cries, woe unto this people. Come out in judgment, O God. Hide their sins and wickedness and abominations from before thy face. Remember 3 Nephi 8, where whole cities were covered by the earth or, or buried under the depths of the sea. Why? To hide their abominations from the all-seeing eye of God. That's what's going to happen to the Nephites here. Verse 16 describes yet another level of their wickedness. 
Again, my son, there are many widows and their daughters who remain in Shariza. And that part of the provisions which the Lamanites did not carry away, behold, the army of Zenephi have carried away and left them to wander whithersoever they can for food. Many old women do faint by the way and die. Now that might not seem like much compared to rape and, and torture and murder and cannibalism, but a neglect of the poor I think is another symptom of that same disease that we have objectified humanity and we no longer see a human being behind suffering or want. These are societies most marginalized, most in need of help and support. These are widows and their daughters and yet they are left to wander wherever they can for food. When we describe the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that led to that destruction, we so often associate it with immorality, which is what we saw in verse 9 in this chapter. But one of the things, especially as Ezekiel is looking back at that time period, one of the things that he pinpoints among the, the depravity of, the, of those cities was their neglect of the poor. When the love of man waxes cold to the point that we do not care about one another at all, that we don't even look to feed widows and orphans, are we getting to that point where we think that might makes right? And that he who dies with the most toys wins, and it's every man for himself. And if you can't keep up with things, then go ahead and fall behind. Or do we care for society's weakest, the ones that most need our help? Verse 17 speaks of awful brutality. Sound familiar if we watch the evening news? Verse 18, oh, the depravity of my people. They are without order. That's anarchy. And without mercy, that's a harshness that doesn't relent. Mormon laments, Behold, I am but a man. Yes, I've been their military leader since I was a teenager. But I have but the strength of a man, and I cannot any longer enforce my commands. Now, what Mormon just said should capture our attention. I'm only a man. Well, isn't that what government is? of the people, by the people, for the people. It's just men and women there in charge. What happens when corruption has gotten to the point where we are powerless to oppose, that, that we're just men and women, and we can't force people to do what is right when they are so given to do what is wrong? The way he phrased it, I cannot any longer enforce my commands. Well, to be honest, the opposite is what's truly miraculous. The fact that anyone ever can enforce their commands. Now, it's one thing to enforce every command by threat of imprisonment or litigation. But do you realize how many of the things that real civilization depends upon is not enforced by commandment? It's simply understood and people expect that of themselves. That's what civilized society is. Clayton Christensen the great Harvard business professor who passed away recently, shared an incredible experience he had with a student at Harvard of his who was a Marxist economist from China, who was incredibly insightful what he saw in America and said to Professor Christensen, democracy works here because most people most of the time voluntarily obey the laws. He went on and, and observed that capitalism works because most people voluntarily keep their promises. So both democracy and capitalism, both our politics and our economics, 
really only work because we are willing to submit to the expectations of civilized society. The phrase that Brother Christensen kept using regarding this was obedience to the unenforceable. If we'll only obey commandments that are enforceable, then we're in trouble. We've become a police state. We have to be compelled in all things, and those are unwise and slothful servants. Brother Christensen quoted an English jurist, Lord John Fletcher Moulton, who said, the probability that democracy and free markets, so there's, again, the politics and the economics, the probability that they will flourish in a nation is proportional to the extent of obedience to the unenforceable. We'll do the right thing because we want to. We can trust each other to be fair with one another, to be just, to be civil. And nobody's forcing us to. We're not afraid of being thrown in prison if we don't. It's just, that's civilization. That's humanity. Brother Christensen summed up his thoughts on the topic with this. Those who assume that the atheistic religions of secularism are a better backbone for freedom and prosperity than the theistic ones that they are trying to push under the back seat have a huge burden of proof which they've not had the intellectual fortitude to discuss, let alone propose as viable solutions. What institutions are they proposing to establish that have enduring power to teach the next generation of Americans to enthusiastically obey unenforceable laws? I have been carefully listening for 12 years for a cogent response to these questions from a disciple of atheism and secularism. So far, at least, they seem to have nothing to say. Obedience to the unenforceable. Such a key. And yet, as we see in Mormon's day and increasingly in our own, we cannot any longer enforce our commands. The fact we would have to enforce them at all is a telling sign. Verse 19, they become strong in their perversion. They're alike brutal, sparing none. This is no respecter of persons in the wrong way instead of, instead of in the right way. They don't spare the old. They don't spare the young. Again, they don't spare the widows. They don't spare the orphans. They don't care. Humanity has been objectified. They delight in everything save that which is good. The suffering of our women and our children upon all the face of this land doth exceed everything. Yea, tongue cannot tell, neither can it be written. Now, Mormon wasn't trying to be a doomsdayer. He just happened to be living in a day of doom. He says in 20, My son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle and past feeling, and their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. Again, those are problems we see in our day. Are we living without principle? If a principle, as Elder Scott has defined it, is a concentrated truth packaged for application, then where are we getting our principles from? Alistair McIntyre, a great philosopher, has written a book about whose virtue or whose justice. Who's to say, who's to establish some, some norm of society that this is what that civilization is supposed to look like? Well, now it's all just relativist. And if, if might makes right, and if you do you, and who am I to judge you for anything that might be different than, than my expectations? We're living in a time where there are no principles generally agreed upon to establish the norms of civil society. And living without principles is living without God in the world, since it's his truth that all good principles grow out of.
Also, that other phrase, they are past feeling. Again, that was always Mormon that was worried. Will the Spirit cease to strive with them? When, when the Spirit is there to prick the heart, if they can't even feel any of that, again, that's Laman and Lemuel, past feeling. Have we deadened the conscience to the point that nothing troubles us anymore? Verse 21, he says again what he hinted at back in verse 14 and 15. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me. In other words, no whitewashed eulogies, no sugar-coated letters of recommendation. I can approach them with charity. I always will, but not with faith or hope for them. Now, that was true of Mormon's people, but thankfully it wasn't true of Mormon's son. He says to Moroni in verse 22, Behold, my son, I do recommend thee unto God, and I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved. You see, his faith in Christ leading to his hope in Christ, ultimate hope for his son. I know you're going to make it because of my faith in Christ, knowing that you have faith in him as well. I pray unto God that he will spare thy life to witness the return of his people unto him. Or, on the other hand, the opposite result, their utter destruction. For I know that they must perish except they repent and return unto him. And if they perish, it will be like unto the Jaredites because of the willfulness of their hearts, seeking for blood and revenge. Again, it's the intent, not just the action. It's the fountain and not just the water that comes from it. One other thing he points out in verse 24, by the way, before we leave this behind. Many of our brethren have deserted over unto the Lamanites, and many more will also desert over unto them. It's just so much easier to join them if you can't beat them, to slouch towards Gomorrah if you're not willing to grow towards Zion. Remember Moroni's beautiful battle cry, I will not deny the Christ. Well, there were some who did and took the easy path and simply deserted over unto the enemy. Sadly, we see that happening all too frequently as people are leaving the cause of Christ and finding an easier path to go. Well, where does that leave Mormon and Moroni? Where does that leave you and me? I love what Mormon says at the beginning of this chapter in verse 6. Recognizing all that he was up against as we've studied this chapter, notice his commitment to the cause. Verse 6, Now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, so no matter what we're up against, no matter how hopeless it seems, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. That's on us. That is something we can control, son. We have no control over their reactions but we do have control over our actions. And they better be Christ-like. They better be focused. They better be diligent because we've got work to do. We weren't asked to solve all the world's problems, but we were asked to do something. We weren't asked to win this war, but we were asked to fight it. And so fight the good fight we must. I remember once years ago, 
a wonderful early morning seminary teacher in Tennessee, just lamenting over a difficult group of students that she had, where it just felt like nothing she was doing was making any difference. And she just kind of wondered, should we just call it quits and, and end seminary in our little branch? And I just remember those words flooding into my mind and heart and saying to her, we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay. She looked at me a little funny until I let her know what I was quoting, that it was up to us to continue fighting, no matter what the odds, that whether or not any of our listeners would actually respond to our calls to repent, we could still conquer the enemy of all righteousness. We could still rest our souls in the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Mormon achieved and exactly what Moroni achieved as well. That was their prayer for one another. That's what the, the passing of these letters from father to son. He says at the end of his letter, end of verse 24, write some of these things down, son. If thou art spared, and I shall perish and not see thee. But then he said, but I do trust that I'll see you soon, for I have sacred records that I would deliver up unto thee. Again, through it all against the odds and fighting battles, literal, physical ones, he's still most concerned about these sacred records. I'm sure God will let me live a little longer because I have some more of my spiritual mission to perform. I've got records to deliver. He then concludes this letter to his son and to each of us with verse 25 and 26, which are so uplifting in the aftermath of so much depressing news throughout the letter that precedes it. And this is the message to every disciple who finds themselves living in dark or desperate days. If you find your faith faltering, if your hope is growing dim, if you are fighting to maintain charity in the face of selfishness all around you, then listen to these words of encouragement from one of your fathers in Christ. Verse 25 and 26, My sons and daughters, be faithful in Christ, even if it feels like you're the last one standing. And may not the things which I have written grieve thee. Don't let them weigh thee down unto death. But may Christ lift thee up. May his sufferings and death and the showing his body unto our fathers and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. Don't let circumstances weigh you down. Let Christ lift you up. Don't dwell on the death and suffering that is all around you. Focus on the death and suffering of Jesus that will give meaning to every one of earth's ills. Don't dwell on the dead bodies that lie all around you on the battlefield. Focus on the fact that Jesus showed his body, risen from the grave, to our fathers, and that all will rise from the grave because of his glorious resurrection. Don't dwell on your people's violence or vengefulness. Dwell on the Lord's mercy and long-suffering. Do not despair, my friends. Have hope, ultimate hope, because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not dwell on the hopelessness of the Nephites' future. Dwell on the hope of glory and eternal life. Let that rest in your mind forever. 
And then verse 26, May the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, let that be and abide with you forever. Amen. You see what he's saying as he sends this off to his son? God is over all. I am just a man. I can no longer enforce my commands. But God can make sure that his will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So may his grace be with you. May it abide with you. May it never leave you. Because with him, there is always hope. As President Irene has beautifully reassured us, I know that we can choose the promised joy of eternal life, however perilous the times. That is Mormon's message to Moroni. That is the Book of Mormon's message to us all. However perilous the times, we can choose God. And as we do so, His grace is over us all.